only to a few weeks in, a few months in, completely train wreck their lives again. It's almost like they sabotaged their lives. And I was, I was just always frustrated. And, and I have a friend uh, who's a counselor up in Birmingham who deals a lot in this area. And, and one of the things he said is, uh, Neil, when folks have, and oftentimes these folks came from very abusive uh, backgrounds, and oftentimes abuse and addictions tie in together because it's a, a means of medication and escape. Um, and one of the things Jay would tell me, is says, you know, um, what happens oftentimes is when folks come from a very chaotic background and then they get on a, what we would perceive as a normal life, the familiar of the chaotic is better than the uncertainty of the new life. Does that make sense? And so they would often almost sabotage their own lives in order to go back to what was normal. Now, I say that because this passage that we're about to read in Exodus 32 reminds me a little bit about that. Of God's people having been delivered from Egypt and now um, entering into a relationship with Him and when things get just a little bit uncertain, they want to go back to the familiar. And maybe you will also um, be able to relate somewhat to that. So let's read Exodus 32. It's on page thirty, or page 72 in your pew Bible. It's the second book in the Bible just after Genesis. And this is what the Lord, His Word says. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... And the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Oh, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that, uh, who brought us out, up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know where he's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that they, that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their rings of gold that were uh, in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven, uh, graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, or Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, the Lord has been 40 days uh, in the presence of the Lord while this is going on. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves and they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people. Behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a new nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he is uh, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against this people, against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said uh, to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your, uh, give to your offering, offspring. And they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, uh, of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, he shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. This is the place where they gathered, this foot of the mountain is where they gathered to hear the voice of the Lord. And he took the calf that had been made and he burned it with fire and ground it in powder and scattered it on the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron says, do not, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know this people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this uh, Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where he's come, what's become of him. And so I said to them, let any of you who have uh, gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It's kind of like a kid going to the, to the grocery store and coming out with candy in his pocket. Where did the candy come from? It just appeared. And when Moses saw that the people had, t- had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord of Israel, Put your sword in your, uh, on your side, each of you, and go to and from the gate, to and fr- from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Lord, or the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men and people fell. Men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for this service of the Lord. Each one of you cost at the cost of his son and at the cost of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I will make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out, from your book that you have written. 
But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Let me pray. Father, lest we think that we are any different, forgive us. We are so much like these people of yours. So quickly to go our own way. We too are stiff-necked. Lord, I ask that your Spirit would come, speak through me, open the hearts of your people, speak to us what you want us to hear, change us, conform us, make us into the image of your Son, that we'd be pleasing in your sight. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy that you don't visit upon us what we justly deserve, but through the blood of Christ, you have turned your wrath away, having poured it on Him instead of me. And we're grateful. Bless our time. May we worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul Paul references this passage And there are lessons that he wants us to learn from this. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. We must not uh, put uh, Christ to the test, as some of them did who were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example that they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So what Paul is saying is that the things that he has chosen to write in the Old Testament, this this very event in Exodus 32 was written not simply to give us a history of what happened. It's not simply a historical narrative, but it was written for you and I. It was written so that we may understand, so that we would that he, he may instruct us and that we would not turn to evil rather than to Christ. So I think there are three or four Points, key points that we can see in this passage. One is, I think we might have them up there, I'm not sure. When faced with uncertainty, high stress, and aloneness, and fear, we are tempted to return to the familiar idols of our heart. The second point, when confronted with sin, our tendency is to shift blame in order to protect ourselves. When guilty, we need a mediator a representative that will intercede for us. And then lastly, God is quick to give mercy, but He always executes justice. So, for us to understand this particular passage and where they are, let's kind of look back. So we look all the way back to the beginning of Exodus. In Exodus 2, 23 and 25, we we see that the people, because they're in slavery and they're under burden and they're in bondage, they call out, they cry out for help. 
And it says in uh, verse 23 and 25 that God heard, He remembered His promises, He saw, and guys, and He knew. He knew them. And so He determines to rescue them. So in chapter 3, God picks Moses to deliver the people. In chapters 5 through 13, God sends Moses down to Egypt. And through those chapters, he delivers ten plagues or ten blows, as Kevin would say. Blow after blow after blow to their gods and their king to show them that he is the Lord. He is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he is all-commanding. And that he will deliver, he will do whatever he pleases, and he will deliver his people from this nation. In chapter 13, God opens the bank. Mirrors, they're about to leave. He has just given the last plague, and they're now rushing, the, they're, they're pushing the people out of the cities, saying, leave. But God opens their heart, and they're giving them gold and silver and jewels. It's like they're opening the bank and says, here, take this too, but just get out. And we'll see what an irony that is later. In chapter 13, they begin to see the pillars of fire in the cloud. In chapters 14, he opens the Red Sea and he destroys the Egyptian army. In chapter 16, they're hungry and they're thirsty and he gives them food. He gives them water from a bitter spring and from the rock. In chapter 24, they see God's glory in the mountain and they confirm His covenant with them. And He says, we will do all that has been written. All that you've commanded, we will do. And in chapter 24, Moses goes up into the cloud and it's a pretty awesome scene as he goes up thunder and lightning and they see the glory of God. And then Moses disappears into the mist to go see and meet with God. Now, we are not told, and they are not told, how long he will be. He's been going up and back, up and back. So that's what they're, that's the familiar. But now he's gone for 40 days. So, point number one. When faced with uncertainty, high stress, and aloneness, fear, we are tempted to return to the familiar idols of the heart. So, we've seen where they've come from. And now, where are they? They're in the desert, four mountain. Aaron and Hur and 70 elders have been left in charge while Moses and Joshua have gone up into the mountain. And day two, Moses doesn't show up. Week later, Moses doesn't show up. Ten days, fourteen days, three weeks, four weeks, forty days, and Moses doesn't show up. So what do they do? Normal for them, we gotta think back what is normal. They have spent four hundred years in bondage in Egypt in a foreign pagan land. Now we don't know how many adhered, we knew that there were God followers throughout among His people. We don't know how many adhered to their pagan worship. But what was normal was a pagan environment. What was normal is the Egyptians worshipped all manner of gods. 
When they needed water, they would worship a god. When they needed sun, they had a god that they worshipped there. And they worshipped the serpents. They worshipped frogs. They worshipped everything. That was the normal for them. And now, they've been with Yahweh just for a few months. And He was anything but normal to them. He was anything but familiar with them. They were in unknown territory. They felt exposed. They're vulnerable, they're scared, and they're alone in their minds. So this terrifying God, who is invisible, that's odd. None of the neighbors have invisible gods. They all have tangible gods. He's terrifying to the point where they go, no, no, Moses, you go before the Lord, we'll keep our distance because he's he, we don't understand him. He's too awesome. He's invisible. It's all unfamiliar to us. That's where they are. And now he's silent. We don't see him. We don't hear him. You've disappeared. What are we to do? Well, they return to the familiar, don't they? In chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together with Aaron and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now, when it says they gathered themselves, Moses uses this in a negative twice. So when he says they gathered, it's really to gather against. So we don't know if... Aaron was complicit with them and they were gathering and said, now you're our leader, so do this for us. Or, Aaron, do this for us. Period. And out of fear, he he uh, acquiesced. We don't know that. We just know he did it. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the ears, the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it. Think about this. Think about the irony of this. Where did that gold come from? From God. The gold came from God through the Egyptians. And what are they about to do? They're about to make another God to replace Him. So this would be like me taking this gold ring, hawking it at a pawn shop so I can go to a hotel and hook up with somebody else. The irony of it. The travesty of it. And so all the people took off the rings and gold and were in, that were in their ears and And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And the reason he made a golden calf, they were used to that. That was one of the major gods of Egypt. It was a strong god. What did they need right now? They need somebody strong because there's enemies around them. They don't know where they're going. They feel alone. And I'm not trying to defend them. That's probably the reality of it. And then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who what? Brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
Not only has he made this calf, but now they're saying, Look, Israel, here are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're attributing to these gods, these idols, what God has done. What did God say in Exodus 21 or 22 when he's about to give them the commands? He says, I am the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you out of the land of bondage, of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And now they're using the same terminology to attribute to these physical shells. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow we shall have a feast to the Lord, Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, it's really interesting here. Is what what the people are doing and what Aaron is complicit in is... They're really not saying, God, we don't like you. We're going to turn away from you. We hate you. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, God, you're just not enough. We don't, li- we don't like who, we don't like wh- how, how you are. You're not enough. We need something else to go along with you. Now that seems perfectly reasonable to them. In fact, We're going to take idolatry and mix it with the worship that you've delegated to us. And we're going to combine them. And we hope that you will will accept it. And what's interesting, when they would, in pagan worship, when they would build an altar in front of the idol, or in this situation, the calf, isn't this weird? They would... They would make the sacrifice in front of the offering to make sure that the idol sees it. How ridiculous is that? So they have to put it right in front so that the the idol can see it. And what they're doing is, if you can see it and you know that we make an offering to you and a sacrifice, then you owe us. We are doing what you've commanded and you owe us protection. That is what they're saying. And what they're saying to God is, God, you are uncontrollable, so we're going to try to hedge our bets and try to control this. They want control. And they don't have it. And so they're trying to create it. They can't control God. He's unpredictable. So what we have to do is add to it and create something that we can control. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to your own heart? To my heart? Is God in uncertain time and I don't know how to control and oh my goodness, I don't know if I can trust you because you've been silent for a while and so i got to create something that I can control and I'm moving my own way because I'm stiff-necked. And that's what they're doing. And Aaron is complicit. They're taking and distorting God. They're distorting what He has called them to do for their own means and their own convenience. And they think it's okay. Second point is when confronted with sin, our tendency is to shift blame in order to protect ourselves 
and divert our blame to others. And we see this happening. We're going to skip up to verse 21. We'll come back later to the middle part of that section. So, speed up as we read. They're making an idol. They begin to worship. God tells Moses, Moses, your people, your people have gone astray. They're now worshiping and sacrificing to others. And you've got to go down. Because my anger is about to burn. And I'm going to destroy them. And I'm going to make you another nation. So he goes down. He... Executes justice, confronts their sin, executes justice, and then he has a conversation with Aaron. And Moses said in verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know these people, for they are set on evil. What is he doing? Moses, you know these people. It's their fault. He didn't stop there. For they said to me, Make us gods who go before us. For as for this Moses, you Moses, the man who brought us out of the, uh, out of the land of Egypt, we don't know where you've become of him. Moses, it's their fault because their hearts are evil, but it wouldn't have happened if you had just been where you were supposed to be. But no, you take off and you leave us alone. It's your fault, Moses. Shifting. And so I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. So they took it off and I threw it in the fire. And guess what? It came out a calf. How convenient. Our tendency is to shift blame when we're confronted with our own sin and stiff nakedness. Nakedness. Not stiff nakedness. That is what I do. When something happens... And I can't control it. I say, it's the situation's fault. It's Jennifer's fault. If my kids were better. If my job had turned out. If this, if this. But I want to shift it everywhere but me. And God looks at me and says, no son. Let's talk about you. God desires to confront. He will confront sin. And repentance is for us to say, Lord God, I am the one. When G.K. Chesterton in England, London had written, the London Times had written uh, an article on who's to blame for all the social ills in our culture. G.K. Chesterton, who's a believer, says, Dear sirs, I am he. I am the one who's who's to blame. I am the problem. And God says, now we can do something. If you take on your own sin and say, I am the problem, that leads us to repentance. But when we're diverting and shifting blame, we can never get to the root of the issue. Let's quickly go on. We see that happen with Adam and Eve. We see that happen with Saul. We see that happen millennial after millennial. Point three, when guilty, we need a mediator. 
We need a representative that will intercede for us. Job said this in Job 9, 33, when he's approaching God. And he understands his wickedness. He understands the, the holiness of God. And he says, if only there was someone to mediate between us. Someone to bring us together. And that's what we see in this passage. In verse 11, after God tells Moses what his intent is, now we need to understand that God is all-knowing. God knows what he's going to do. God is sovereign, all-knowing. He is. He knows his plan. He, know, he knew before he chose these people that this was going to happen. So God is not diverting when he says, Moses, you're people. He's not saying, Moses, it's your fault. He's not shifting responsibility to Moses. But he's saying, Moses, you're people. I'm assigning you to deal with this. And he's inviting Moses to intercede for his people because he's telling Moses what his intent will be unless someone intercedes. My wrath is storing up. I will destroy this people. And I will start over. Leave me alone. Moses responds and replies, But Lord, that's not your character. Moses is not responding based on the righteousness of the people. He's responding, he's praying on the basis of God's character. He's going, God, no, because that's not you. Remember, remember the Lord. What are the Egyptians going to say? If they say you've taken your people off to destroy them. So he's appealing to his glory. He's appealing to his promises. Remember what you said to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That you're going to give them a promised land. And he intercedes. And what does the Lord do? He relents. Not because he hadn't planned on it. He's inviting Moses to come along. To be a part of redemption and restoration and mercy. And we see that happen as well in the end. And what a great picture of what Christ will do in in the future. When he says the next day, and this is verse 30, And Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. And so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. He doesn't skirt the issue. They're deserving of your wrath. They are. He was angry with them. But then he says, They have made for them gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. He's appealing to what he knows about God, what he knows about Yahweh, that he's a merciful God. But if not, please blot me out of your book. That you have written. Lord, if you choose not to forgive, blot me out, because I'm just as undeserving. And God relents, and God says, Moses, take them to where I've told you to take them. What's he he saying? He doesn't excuse sin, because he executes justice. He's saying, I'm going to have mercy, and I'm going to continue with the promises that I've made in the preparation of the tabernacle and fellowship with my people. What a great picture of the mercy of God. 
the God who's merciful from generation to generation to generation. He desires to pour out mercy. Now, we have good news. <clears throat> we don't just have Moses. In Hebrews 7.25, consequently, it says this, consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always leaves, lives to make intercession for them. In Romans 8.34, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up, uh, gave him up for us all. How will he not also give um, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of uh, of God? Who indeed is what interceding for us always? Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything will separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Be of good cheer. You and I are just as guilty of making idols and turning away from the Lord who's gracious and good to try to control Him or to add things to Him. And yet we have an intercessor. We have a mediator who's always pleading our case before the Lord on our behalf because of His sacrifice. Lastly, God is quick to give mercy, but He'll always execute justice. And He does this. He does this in... 39, 27 to 29, when the Levites killed 3,000 men among the people that day. But in Exodus 34, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, the God is merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And yet God's mercy is everlasting because His wrath has been poured out on Christ. So, how do we apply this to us? As we said, this was written according to Paul to instruct us and teach us. So my question is, in times of stress, fear, and worry, where do you go? Where do you go? Is your tendency to go to the Lord? God, I'm fearful. Go to Him. How do we go to escape? Do we go to substances? Drugs or alcohol? Pornography? Eating? What is our idol? What is your idol? What is my idol? When God seems silent... Are far away? Are you tempted to run and leave? Or in order to maintain some sort of control, create idols or add to God, Jesus plus? What do you do? Or what do you trust alongside of Jesus? I know I need God in my life, but I also need blank for my life to be okay. What is blank to you? 
You're doing just like Aaron did. If you want to know, just look where you go to most reflexively in times of stress and fear. So when do you, what is your default? When stress and, and aloneness hit, where do you go? That's probably a good indicator of what your idol is. And lastly, remember, do like what John calls for the church of Laodicea. Remember the heights from which you've fallen and and remember where you came from. Remember the goodness of the Lord. Remember what He has done. Remember His promises. Remember that you have a mediator, an intercessor. And run to the King rather than broken cisterns. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time. Thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would change us and make us, draw us near to You. Father, I pray that we grow tired of the things that we think will give us life, but only leave us more thirsty for other, for more. And may we go to the One who gives true bread, the One who gives true water, living water, and feed our souls. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and sing. Blessed is the man who walks in your favor, who loves all your words and hides them like treasure. In the darkest place of his desperate heart, they are alive. A strong, sure life. Sometimes I call out your name, but I cannot find you. I look for your face, but you are not there. By my sorrows, Lord, lift me to Lift me up to your side, Lord of eternity, Father of mercy, look on my fainting soul, I keep stars friend of the poorest heart and touch me and make me whole if you are my defender who is against me no one 
can trouble or harm me if you are my strength. All I ask, all I desire is to live in your house all my days. Lord of eternity, and God of all mercy, I come to my troubled soul. A keeper of all the stars, a friend of the poorest heart. Touch me and make me Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you, Neil. I'm going to uh, pray for our time together, uh, pray for our meal uh, next door, and then also dismiss us with a benediction. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for feeding us through your word. It is the food that we need the most, but God, we thank you also that you have provided uh, nourishment and sustenance through physical food as well. And so, Lord, would you bless uh, the food that we're about to eat? God, would you make it uh, so that it nourishes us, and would you bind us together in community that we would enjoy one another's fellowship? Uh, Father, now we are dismissed with your blessing that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with us all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.